And I'm going to direct your attention uh, to a couple different passages, um, and uh, we'll look at what the Scripture has to say. Let's go first to 2 Chronicles chapter 6 and verse 10. 2 Chronicles 6 and verse 10. Amen. <clears throat> Pastor Lucas had asked me to uh, preach tonight in his uh, perceived absence. He was going to supposed to be on a work job or something, but um, but then he was able to stay. But he said, "Go ahead and preach what I feel." So I'm going to go ahead and do that. Hallelujah. But Second uh, Chronicles six verse ten. I'm just going to read the first part of that. It says the Lord therefore hath performed his word that he hath spoken. And then if you can turn real fast to John 10, 35. Amen. The, the last part of that verse, I want to focus on just the last few words. Jesus said, and the scripture cannot be broken. And I'm going to borrow Jesus' very words there tonight and use that as my title. Scripture cannot be broken. Amen. Amen. Father, you are the living and written word. Now I pray that you would anoint this meeting tonight. Cause my tongue to be the pen of a ready writer. Open our understanding that we may comprehend the scripture. Lord, we thank you for your deliverance and your healing. We thank you for your forgiveness, grace, and mercy. And we speak your truth in Jesus' name. And would you say amen? Amen. amen. As, we, as you know, we are reading through uh, Micah through uh, Malachi in this month, and uh, some exciting things there in those prophet, prophetical books. But just for a moment, I want to tie into a couple more passages. We know from, from Scripture that the book of Ezra tells us that the word of the Lord will be fulfilled. Jeremiah in Lamentations wrote and said, The Lord hath done that which he had devised. He hath fulfilled his word that he commanded. We know that Isaiah prophesied and said that God's word was like the rain that comes down and waters the earth and the snow that comes down from heaven, causing it to bring forth and bud to give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. And then he says, so shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth, shall not return to me void, but shall accomplish that which I please and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Amen. We know also that Jesus, time and again, but one specifically stood out to me, Mark 14, 49, says that scriptures must be fulfilled. So on the basis of all of those, I want to launch into something here tonight and tell you that each one of those things I just read and referred to elevate the Word of God to its rightful place of preeminence. It puts it above everything else. Just as I'm lifting it over my shoulder now, it raises the Word of God to its rightful place as preeminent and authoritative and absolute and the only source and resource, amen, that can qualify and prove itself. Praise God. Amen. I'm thankful for the Word of God. It is supreme. It is superior. It is breathed out by Him. And when God speaks, His Word is fulfilled. God cannot lie. Titus 1 and 2 says that. In fact, Numbers 23, 19 in Hebrews says it's impossible for Him to lie. Therefore, since He is the Word, John 1, 1, His Word cannot 
lie. Amen. As I mentioned, we're presently reading through um, from Micah through to Malachi this month. God dealt with me about bringing forth this message to reveal two main things from these books. We're going we're gonna to look at a panoramic view of all of them uh, here in just a moment. But firstly, we're going to look at some messianic, pro- messianic prophecies which were fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus Christ. That's what messianic uh, would refer to, the first coming, the Calvary, His birth, etc. Secondly, we're then going to look at apocalyptic prophecies which obviously will be yet to be fulfilled and and will be fulfilled in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Hermeneutics, which is the science and study of preaching and teaching and scripture, of course, will aid us in discerning between the two. Now let me give you just a, a helpful, if I can say the word hint, when it comes to prophecy. If a prophecy about Jesus says such things as birth, redemption, day, uh, uh, day of the Lord in a positive light, like redeemer, rejoicing, uh, reconciliation, etc. That's pointing to the first coming because those things happened. He brought grace. He brought life. He brought a new covenant, so on and so forth. However, uh, on the other hand, if it's saying damnation and fire and judgment and vengeance and wrath, that's the second coming. He did not come the first time to do that. Does that make sense? That's, that's pretty much the easy way to kind of ascertain which of the prophecies, which prophecy is what. So with that, let's jump into the book of Micah. You got your Bibles? It's Bible study. Amen. Let's whip them out. Hallelujah. Amen. And take a look here tonight at Micah chapter 1 and verse number 9. It says here, for her wound is incurable for it has come unto Judah he is come unto the gate of my people even to Jerusalem now let me point out something as well okay I want to be cautious with what I'm about to do here with this very first one we have to first understand the Bible in its present context meaning who was Micah specifically prophesying to in that present day and why and what was the result Well, the answer to those questions are he was prophesying of the the pending and coming judgment upon Jerusalem, Judah, i.e. the southern kingdom, because of their idolatry, and they would be taken into captivity by the Babylonians. We know the northern kingdom, which was Samaria, the other ten tribes, would be taken into captivity by Assyria. Other prophets prophesied about that. So we know the present context speaks to that but we also know that it can have an element of pointing to something else how many of you know that this bible still today presents to us the infallible word of god and is inspired by him it's breathed out by him it's profitable for us for doctrine and reproof and so on and so forth in other words we can still gain things from it today and see that it may also be pointing to something else does that make sense okay So when he says her wound is incurable, he is first speaking of the fact that this is inevitable. Judgment is coming and there's nothing you can do to stop it. But the fact that he would use two key words, incurable wound, tells me that this also is pointing to something else. A wound, by definition, is something, or or an open, festering 
a wound that ha- cannot and has not been healed. It's, it's susceptible to infection and disease. And the word incurable is pretty explanatory. It, it's terminal. You're going to die. Does that make sense? Why am I bringing this up? That's a great question. Let me answer. If you read Micah 1, 1 through 9, you would see that the inevitable destruction that was coming upon Judah and Israel also points to the end of God's covenant with Israel, which is why he called it an incur- a curable wound. Hmm. Let me, let me further explain. When Jesus comes, he's coming to fulfill the law. Right? Hebrews 8.13 calls the law now an obsolete covenant. Daniel 9.26 prophesies that he'll be this one to come who will put an end to sin and finish the transgression and seal up the prophecy and so on and so forth. And Jesus does these things. How many times you know, have you read the Bible and Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. What he was saying was, this was the intent of the law. You missed the point the first time around. You you missed the point because you got wrapped up in idolatry. Then you got wrapped up in adding all kinds of other things to it. And then your rabbinical writings, your Talmud, and all of this. And that's not what I said. This is what I meant. Which is why Jesus looked at them and said, hey, your law says that a man can divorce a wife. I say to you, if you look at a woman and lust after her, you've already committed adultery in your heart. That was the intent of the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. And so, what Jesus, I believe, is speaking through Micah is not just directed at Judah and Jerusalem here, but can be further pointed to the fact that the covenant would come to an end with Israel exclusively. Okay? Now, in Micah chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, you'll see that the sun is prophesied to stop shining. This is rather interesting because when the covenant ends... Amos prophesies and says that the sun will cease to shine for three hours beginning at noon. It's very interesting then that in chapter, uh, Luke chapter 23 that the sun stops shining at the sixth hour, which is noon, and stops shining for three hours. Yeah. Exactly what Micah and Amos have pointed to, which was signifying the end of the covenant exclusively with Israel, which is why at that same simultaneous time that he cried out, it is finished, the veil ripped in twain from top to bottom. I used to think that it was so that we could get in. I actually think now it was so that God could get out. They had boxed him up. They had veiled him up. And he was like, enough is enough. I'm out. Because we don't worship at a temple anymore. We are the temple of the Holy Ghost. Amen. In Micah 3, uh, verses 9 through 12, you'll see, uh, if you were to read through that, that there are some of the priests and some of the prophets uh, that were hirelings. They were were people that would, would, would... prophesy for a price and and they would tell you what would make you feel good in fact they were saying during Micah's day that Israel is going to be safe Micah's a liar well he wasn't 
They will prophesy and further write in the Talmud, their rabbinical writings, that when Messiah comes, He'll come as a warrior to overthrow the kingdoms of this world, the powers that be their enemies and rid the land of their enemies. And that's nowhere in Scripture that that is indicated except when He sets up His eternal kingdom, which is after the apocalypse. And so they, they, what they did was they, they convoluted the two together which is why many Jews still this day aren't looking. They're looking for the first coming of the Messiah, rather. Yeah. Not the second. Isn't it interesting, then, that when Jesus comes, how many times does the Scripture tell us that the people were amazed by His teaching because the rabbis didn't teach with that kind of authority? Yeah. Right? Yeah. So we're seeing fulfillment here. We also know that Jesus was in the temple at 12, confounding the wise with his teachings. So all of those, and that's kind of what we would call an uh, uh, implicit prophecy. It doesn't come out and actually explicitly prophesy, but it's implicit because it points to something that would happen, i.e. the end of the new covenant, Jesus Christ being that end of the new covenant. Does that make sense? Okay, moving on. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Now, this is what we would call an explicit prophecy. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of these shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Hallelujah. In other words, God was there before time began. Amen. Hallelujah. <laughs> He's timeless. Now that one is, a, again, an explicit prophecy. And we see three key things in Micah 5, 2. Number one, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Matthew 2, verse 1 tells us this. Number two, he would be a ruler in Israel, which Luke 2.25 declares. And we know from also Isaiah's prophecy and from prophecies during the time of Jesus and after that he would be and is from everlasting. Amen. So you can see Micah has some explicit and implicit prophecies of the first coming of Jesus Christ. All right? I got to hurry because I've got still 14 pages of notes, so I got to get through this. So bear with me. Amen. We'll, we'll, I promise we'll have questions later. Amen. <laughs> Let's go to Zephaniah. Okay? We're going to skip Nahum because he doesn't have any messianic prophecies, but we'll skip him for now and we'll come back to him in the later part. Zephaniah 3 verse 9, for then will I turn to the people a pure language that they may call all, call upon the name of the Lord to serve Him with one consent. I, myself and other scholars believe this is pointing to the same thing that Isaiah talked about in chapter 28, verse 11, when he says that he will speak through his people with stammering lips in another tongue. Amen. Isn't it interesting that God scattered a united people by dividing their tongues at the Tower of Babel but united a divided people by giving them the utterance to speak in unknown tongues in the upper room. Hallelujah. And so Zephaniah 3.9 is an implicit prophecy of the coming of the new covenant, the being, the being poured out, the Holy Spirit. It's, I would still place it under a messianic prophecy simply because had Jesus not come and died on the cross, rose again, we wouldn't have a Pentecost where we could be filled with the Spirit. So you kind of, they, they, they are all in that together. Amen. 
Zephaniah chapter 3, uh, verses 12 through 13. It says, Those who are left will be the lowly and humble, for it is they who trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong. They will never tell lies or deceive one another. They will eat and sleep in safety, and no one will make them afraid. The reason I'm bringing this one out, it's another implicit uh, prophecy of the Messiah, is because of the word remnant. The remnant, I call it remnant theology, that we see in all of the prophetic books. Isaiah has a lot of it uh, as well. This remnant theology, Isaiah sums it up best. He says, though your seed be as the sand of the seashore, only a remnant shall remain. What he was saying was, there's going to be a number of people reject Christ, but there will be the first that will be born again will, in fact, be Jews. What did Paul say in, in Romans? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation. To the Jew first. It fell on them first. The remnant was present at the upper room. Some 3,000 who received the Holy Ghost. So we see remnant theology here. We also see this, again, throughout the other prophetic books. We also see this throughout Romans specifically. Chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. Chapter 9, all of chapter 11, all speaks about this remnant theology which proves that Israel was saved and is being saved, but now everyone can be saved. In fact, Romans 11 uh, talks about grafting into the vine, the vine being Christ. Natural branches were broken off. That's Israel. Okay? Broken off. And some of them, a remnant, grafted back in to the vine. And then unnatural branches. That's the Gentiles, that's you and I, are also grafted into the same vine. When Paul returns to this same type of preaching and teaching in Ephesians, he says, of the two, Jew, Gentile, he has made both one. So here's something to consider. I'm not yet there, but I'm going to just throw this out to think about. As, as all of you know, I I'm, I'm, I'm believe in the post-trib rapture of the church. I believe that because I believe that's what the Bible teaches, clearly. But let me tell you further why I believe that. To have a pre-trib rapture, you have to then bifurcate what God has brought together. The Bible says what God has brought together, let no man put asunder. That was quoted by Mitchell Bland, the pastor, uh, over my son and, and daughter-in-love. That, you know, you know, what God has brought together, no man put asunder. That's scriptural, it's biblical. They're now one in Christ, etc. The same thing applies from Ephesians and Romans. He's brought Jews and Gentiles into one. But a preacher of rapture separates him again. And in fact says he's coming for the Gentile bride. That's not a biblical term. He's not coming for the Gentile bride first and then a few years later returning for Jews. Scripture does not teach that. It does teach that we are the Israel of God and that the remnant of Israel is born into that the same way we're born into that. They're grafted in, born again just like we are. Is that making sense? I know this is getting deep, but that's what prophecy does. Hallelujah. I might have to have a part two, Lucas. Okay, just, just say it. I'll give you whatever I'm preaching again. You can have mine. We'll just trade. We'll just switch off or something here. Baseball has switch hitters or pinch hitters or something. So there we go. That's what we'll do. Amen, amen, amen. Okay, staying with Messianic, though. I just had to kind of throw that out. So, you know, coming to the pulpit near you. Let's now go to the book of Haggai. Amen. Haggai. 
Chapter 1, verse 14. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheath. I would love to have the name Zerubbabel. It's like Zerubbabel. It's just, I love the way it sounds. Zerubbabel. It's like, cool. Anyway, amen. And the spirit of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and the spirit of all the, here it is again, remnant of the people. And they came and did work in the house of the Lord, the host, their God, in the four and twentieth day of the sixth month of the year, Darius the king. Now again, this is implicit. This is specific that, that, that a remnant returned after the Babylonian captivity. Those that weren't killed, a remnant came back. Uh, Zerubbabel can also be found in Nehemiah uh, because he helps Ezra and Nehemiah talk about him. And, and they come and they're that remnant. But it, it gives us a picture. So it's implicit. It gives us a picture of this remnant being born again and not all of them. Amen? So I've included Haggai and Zephaniah. Uh, to, to show that Messiah will come. And, and by the way, had he never come, Haggai and Zechariah there wouldn't have made any sense anyway uh, pointing to that. So, all right, now let's go to Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your fellows that sit before you, for they are men wounded at before. Behold, I will bring... Forth my servant, the branch. And if you're reading King James, I believe it's all capitalized. Okay? I love that. It's like, the branch! It's like, boom, man, you better sit up and take notice. Right? For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. This is very explicit prophecy. It shows us that Christ is the branch. We know that from, from a plethora of other scriptures. Amen. We know that also Christ is the stone that the builders rejected. Amen. And thirdly, we know that uh, Christ is... Praise God, the remover of all iniquity in one day. He didn't just roll it ahead for a year. He removed it entirely, amen, in one day. Can somebody say praise the Lord? For a moment, open your Bibles with me to Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, because this, this also speaks of what he did in that one day. Praise God. Actually, uh, 924 rather. I'm sorry, 924. It says, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Watch this. To finish the transgression. The law came because of transgression. So, in other words, to finish the law. To fulfill it. To make an end of sins. Christ did that. Through Him, there's an end of sin. He's the remover of iniquity. And to make reconciliation for iniquity. Oh, praise God. I couldn't reconcile my own iniquity. I couldn't atone for my own sin. I couldn't pay for it, earn it, or anything else. And to bring in everlasting righteousness. Oh, hallelujah. I'm so thankful for the everlasting gospel that now brings me everlasting righteousness. And to seal up the vision and prophecy. In other words, to prove it, to put the seal on it, to say this is it. And to anoint the most holy. Hallelujah. Which is himself. And now that He dwells in us, when we receive the Holy Spirit, we become the holy temple of God. <laughs> oh, hallelujah. Oh, you know, no wonder the angels encamp around about us. Because the Spirit is in us. Those cherubs that covered the mercy seat, crying, holy, 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 right? They're now surrounding us. 
crying, holy, holy, holy. Hallelujah. As we're now the temple of the Holy Spirit. Praise God. All right, let's go to Zechariah chapter 6. Oh. One of these days, I'm going to have a special service where I just preach for like 12 hours. Amen. Notice I didn't look up. I didn't want anybody to know. (laughs) Zechariah chapter 6. Amen. Verse number 12. And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch. There it is again. And he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. We know that that's not the temple as in a, a building. He's building up the church. Upon this rock I have, you know, will build my church. Okay? Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory. He shall set and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Wow. Again, this temple that he's building is us, the church. It's why he came. It's why this is a messianic prophecy. He came in order to build the church. You know, for people to say that church ain't important, this is how important it was to God. He died for it and purchased it with his blood. That's how important the church is to God. And guess who the church is? I'm looking at it. Not blue chairs, not gray walls, not tan carpet. You. Praise God. And me. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, even upon a colt, the foal of an ass. In this single verse, we see the following prophecies fulfilled. Number one, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Number two, to be beheld as a king. Three, he would be just and is just. Four, a bringer of salvation. Five, humble, lowly. And six, riding upon a colt into Jerusalem. Six prophecies fulfilled in one verse. You know, I have to wonder how many of those Jews that day laying branches knew Zechariah's prophecy. It is said of Zechariah that other than Isaiah, he's probably the most to present messianic prophecies of Jesus Christ and clear. His are explicit, not implicit. Let's go go to Zechariah 11. Amen. 3 through 14. There is a voice of the howling of the shepherds for their glory is spoiled. The voice of the roaring of young lions for the pride of Jordan is spoiled. Thus says the Lord my God, feed the flock of the slaughter whose possessors slay them and hold themselves not guilty. And they that sell them say, blessed be the Lord for I am rich. And their shepherds pity them not. Their own shepherds, excuse me. For I will no more pity the inhabitants of the land, saith the Lord. Below I will deliver the men, every one, into his neighbor's land and into the hand of his king. He shall smite the land, and out of their hand I will not deliver them. I will feed the flock of slaughter, even you, O poor of the flock. And I took unto me two staves, the one I called beauty, and the other I called bands, and I fed the flock. Verse number 8. Three shepherds also I cut off in one month, and my soul loathed them, and their soul also abhorred me. Then said I, I will not feed you. What dies, let it die. And what is to be cut off, let it be cut off. And let the rest eat every one of the flesh of another. And I took my staff, even beauty, and I cut it asunder, that I might break my covenant, which I have made with all the people. That's important right there. 
That's important. Don't, don't just skip over that. Remember way back in Micah? You know, this, this incurable wound? He's breaking the covenant. Why? Because they didn't want to keep it. We'll get to that in a minute. Amen. It was broken in that day, and so the poor of the flock that waited upon me knew that it was the word of the Lord. And I said unto them, If you think good, give me the price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price <clears throat> 30 pieces of silver. Sound familiar? And the Lord said unto me, Cast it unto a potter. Does that sound familiar? The potter's field. A goodly price that I was priced out of them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Did not Judas bring it back to the Pharisees? Then I cut asunder mine other staff, even bands, that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. If you remember the kingdom split, Israel went north to Samaria, Judah stayed in Jerusalem, amen? You had the kingdom of Judah, the kingdom of Israel, the two kingdoms, the southern and northern kingdom, still claiming to worship the same. That's why when Jesus goes to Samaria, the woman says, our fathers say worship on this mountain, and you Jews say on that mountain. And Jesus says, you're both wrong. I'm coming because I want true worship. And so what he was saying here is, I'm putting you into captivity. You're going to go to Assyria captivity, Babylonian captivity. I'm breaking the covenant with you. You haven't kept it anyway. But as Jeremiah prophesies, it's not going to be a covenant like I wrote of the Old Testament on stone. It's a new covenant I'm going to write. In fact, Isaiah, or Jeremiah calls it a new covenant. Oh, I wish I had time to preach this. Lord have mercy. So watch this. Ten prophecies in that passage I just read. Verse 3 tells us Israel will be without a shepherd. That's fulfilled in Matthew 9.36. i got to run through these fast. You can watch the video and pause after. I'm sorry. Or I'll send you my notes. Either way. Verse 4, Christ coming to his own and being rejected by them. John 1.11. Is, uh, verse 5, Israel had corrupt leaders when Messiah came. John 3.19 tells us this. Verses 6 and 8, Christ rejected. Luke 4.29 and Mark 12.10. Verses 6 and 9, Christ stops ministering to them who reject Him. John 10.16. Verse 7, a ministry to the poor and to the remnant of Israel. Matthew 13.13. 13. Verses 10, 11, and 14, the old covenant ending. Daniel 9.26 and Hebrews 9.24 and Hebrews 8.13. And Hebrews 9, uh, 28. Verse 12, Christ betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Matthew 26, 15. Verse 13, Judas throwing the silver in the temple. Matthew 27, 5. Verse 13, Judas' money being used to purchase a potter's field. Acts chapter 1, 18 and 19. Ten prophecies fulfilled explicitly of Christ in that one passage. My, my, my. Zechariah 12, 10. Watch this. I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced. They shall mourn for him as one mourn for his only son. Jesus was the son of God. And shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for the firstborn. Again, we see two prophecies here. He's a son of God and he was pierced. Zechariah 13, flip over another chapter. Verses 6 and 7. And one shall say to them, what are these wounds in thine hands? He shall answer these, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow, says the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand upon the little ones. Again, watch this. We see some prophecies here fulfilled, four of them to be exact. 
Christ was wounded and rejected by his own. Two, Christ is the good shepherd that lays down his life. Three, Christ was crucified. It, it describes being smitten, a brutal death. Four, the disciples were scattered and were persecuted after. All of these prophecies in Zechariah, and, and, and i got to keep going because i, I got to at least finish the first half. Lord, help me, Jesus. Malachi 3, verse 1. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Like others, there are multiple prophecies here in Malachi 3.1. One, we see that John the Baptist would be sent to prepare the way for Jesus. Two, we see Jesus cleansing his temple. He would go to his temple and would cleanse it. And three, we see Jesus bringing in the new covenant there's also and by the way you know the reason that's a messianic prophecy is because it, it points to jesus the messenger would say he's coming john said he's coming uh, in malachi chapter 4 verses 5 and 6 it says behold i will send you elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the lord and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers as they come and smite the earth with the curse well, the Bible tells us plainly in Matthew and uh, 11 and 17 that John fulfills this. John the Baptist, again, coming to speak this. Now, as you can see, what some call the minor prophets are filled with some major prophecies. And by the way, Jesus Christ fulfilled all of them. Not just the ones we read, but all of the prophecies from Genesis chapter 3, the very first Messianic prophecy, all the way through. Now, some scholars uh, say that there are 351 distinct prophecies of the first coming. Some say 386, and a few even say 414. You say, well, man, that's a uh, you know, wide range. It's somewhat close, especially the first two. But why the difference? Well, the variance stems from how some view certain passages to be prophetic, while others do not. For example, explicit versus implicit. So the, the higher number could include implicit prophecies as well, such as I read a few tonight also. Whereas the 351 is probably all explicit. The re reason I say probably, I haven't done complete research. At the beginning of this year, God spoke to me to begin studying. I'm doing it in my spare time, which I have a lot of. Amen. And I'm studying prophecies that were fulfilled. What, what I think the Spirit turned me to was I'm reading one day and all of a sudden and this was done that the scriptures would be fulfilled I'm like that's cool and I'd look it up where it was and I'd be reading a little bit later and this was done because Isaiah said and I'm like wait a minute there's a lot of these and so I started just digging them out and I'm finding all kinds of cool things about the scriptures and how they're connected and, and so forth well I haven't studied to see which one of these numbers is correct but let me say this regardless of which one is right and whether all of them are implicit and explicit Jesus Christ fulfilled all of them, the implicit ones and the explicit ones. That's what's important. It's not important whether it was 414 or 351. What's important was he fulfilled all of them. We've been spraying a lot of Lysol in this church since the outbreak of COVID over a year ago. I think we've just about kept Lysol in business. But at, at best... Lysol is only 99.9% .9 effective, which is why we use two cans, and we crisscross them. That way, or at least I do when I'm spraying, I'm, I'm, I'm like, Shh. 
That way, the the point one percent on this can and the point I, I you know I crisscross them and I you know I, so I, I get it. But <laughs> but unlike Lysol, who only can get ninety nine point nine percent of germs. Jesus Christ fulfilled 100% of the prophecies. Ha, 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 ha. Oh, hallelujah. You know why that's powerful and important to me? Because it further proves that this is right. Writers who did not know each other, writers who were separated by years, would write the same thing. Writers who some were uneducated and others were intelligent. Others were farmers. Others were just woke up one day and told to do something. Wrote what we have now as the Bible. And it is fulfilled. And Jesus Christ fulfilled all of them. So here's what it tells me. No matter how many there are, okay? We'll just use the middle number for, for safe you know, hypothetical right now. We'll just say 386. Him fulfilling all of that means he will fulfill all of the apocalyptic prophecies as well. He's not going to fulfill 99.9% of them. He's going to fulfill 100% of them. Hallelujah. By the way, I did check to make sure all in the Greek and Hebrew means all, and it does. Hallelujah. I do not have time to run through all the apocalyptic prophecies by opening up and turning to them. But I'm going to just quickly walk through a few places here in Scripture. Micah has two different specific ones. In chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, speaks of terrible destruction, including molten and fiery wrath about the day of the Lord. We also see in Micah 4, verses 1 through 2, a kingdom being established, which is a millennial reign. Nahum, while specific to Nineveh, it's implicitly prophetic of the apocalypse in verses 2 through 10, speaking of the devastation and the wrath of God to come. Habakkuk gives us maybe an answer to Revelation 8, 1 and the silence in heaven. In chapter 2, verse 20, it talks about being silent in the glory and the presence of God. 3 verse 6 and 3 verses 10 through 12 explain extreme cosmic and worldwide destruction such as the sun not shining and the moon turning to blood and stars falling and mountains melting and all of this which is repeated in Matthew and Revelation and so on and so forth. That's in Habakkuk. Zephaniah 1, 14 through 18 mentions the day of the Lord and wrath. Mentions a trumpet being sounded and an alarm going out. Mentions that gold and silver will not help people in that day. And we see Matthew and Luke and 1 Corinthians and 2 Thessalonians and Revelation all speaking of this. In, Ma in, in um, Zephaniah 3 verse 8 mentions the gathering of nations specifically at a place called Megiddo. Armageddon. Haggai, chapter 2, 6 through 9, mentions the glory of the latter house, which is remnant theology, but also pointing to how that those remnant will be there in the end times. Chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, talks about the earth shaking and nations being shaken and the destruction of military power, which will happen at Armageddon. Zechariah, chapter 6, mentions four horses, just like... Uh, Revelation 6 mentions four horses. Revelation 9, 14 says, and I quote, the Lord shall blow the trumpet. Kind of sounds like 1 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians. 
Uh, Zechariah 12 verse 11 also mentions Megiddo and the nations. And also chapter 14 verses 3 and 4 mentioning Armageddon. And finally, Malachi chapter 4 verses 1 through 3 give us a depiction of the wrath of the wicked and redemption of the righteous happening at the same time. In other words, when he's coming down to pour out his wrath, his church, his bride, is going up to be with him and, and ride on white horses with him following. Again, I'll send you my notes, or you can go back and pause the video after. But let me say this. Jesus came once to deal with sins. And he's coming once more not to deal with sin, but bring salvation. I'm going to read Hebrews 9, 24 through 28. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. It says, For Christ did not enter into a holy place made with hands, made with human hands, excuse me, which was only a copy of the true one in heaven. He entered into heaven itself to appear now before God on our behalf. And he did not enter uh, to heaven to offer himself again and again like the high priest on earth who enters the most holy place year after year with the blood of an animal. If that had been necessary, Christ would have had to die again and again ever since the world began. But now, once for all time, he has appeared at the end of the age to remove sin by his own death as a sacrifice. And just as each person is destined to die once and after this the coming judgment, now listen to verse 28. So also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for Him. When Christ comes back, He's not coming back to bring justification. The word salvation here, you don't want to get hung up on it. Salvation is that elastic word you've heard me talk about. When you're born again, you're justified. That means you're declared right from sin. You're made righteous by God. You, the, the penalty of sin is paid for you by His death. Does that make sense? From that point till Jesus comes or you die, which is ever first, you're being sanctified on a daily basis where you're being delivered from the power of sin. And day by day, the Bible talks about how uh, you know, the flesh is dying, but the inner man's being renewed. That's what sanctification is, day by day. But this salvation here that Hebrews is writing about is what's called glorified or glorification. That's the final step of that salvation, where when He comes, we're not just going to be delivered from the penalty of sin or the power of sin, but forevermore, the presence of sin. Because we will be with Him in eternity, and we know from Revelation that in that city with Him, there is no sin. There is no abomination. We will return to what it was like in the first two chapters of the Bible. Sinless. Let me say this. Scripture cannot be broken. God's Word is forever settled in heaven. There's not a legislative body that can outlaw God. There's not an educational body that can somehow write God out of their textbook and He disappear. There's not a bar powerful enough to disbar God from His authority. Ah. 
And like the one old preacher said it, you can't impeach him and he ain't going to resign. He's God all by himself. Scripture cannot be broken. Every word of God proves true. Hallelujah. Scripture cannot be broken. His word will never return to him void. Oh, hallelujah. Scripture cannot be broken. God's word lives and abides forever. And it is that very word of God which we are born again of. Not of incorruptible. Oh, I wish somebody would hear that. Not of incorruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God. Amen. You might have been born into a family with a lot of pain and heartache. and You might have experienced a lot of pain and heartache. But brother or sister, when you were born again, you were born of incorruptible seed. Hallelujah. Scripture cannot be broken. Hallelujah. Scripture cannot be broken. It is alive and active, which is what quick and powerful means. It cannot be broken. It discerns to the very heart of the matter. Hallelujah. Scripture cannot be broken. For when John saw Jesus in his vision on the Isle of Patmos, he wrote, Revelation 19, 13, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. <laughs> in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Oh, what's powerful is... There's a psalm, I think it's 138, I'm not for sure, i have to look it up, but it says that, that he exalts his uh, name above his word. But Revelation says his word is the, his name is the word of God. And so if we go back to Psalms and say, well, he exalts his name above his word, and we go back to Revelation and say his name is his word, you can see we have this never-ending stair step, because he is the word. And Scripture cannot be broken. You know what that tells me? That tells me. Sister Alicia, when God found Mary, and she was favored to bear the Christ child, he knew that there would also be a Joseph Oh. There was not a Joseph and a Mary before that. Oh. You see, God knew exactly when. Scripture cannot be broken. Read, read. The next time you read in the New Testament and you find where it says, and this was done that the Scripture would be fulfilled, if you've got one of them Bibles of the cross, go look it up. And go back to the Old Testament and see where it was prophesied. And you're going to see that place after place, the Psalms, the law, the prophets, all speak of this coming. And if everything was down to the very minute detail of, for example, 
he went to Nazareth so that he would be called a Nazarene and the scriptures would be fulfilled. He, his father, earthly father, woke up in a dream and said, take your son to Egypt so that it would be fulfilled that he came out of Egypt. Time and again, these things happen. Not coincidentally. It might have appeared coincidentally to, to Mary and to Joseph and to others, but it was a plan. And what was the plan? To bring salvation. Because from before the foundation of the world, before there was ever a word spoken over this empty, formless void of darkness, God was already making up in His mind to be a Savior. <laughs> Scripture. Cannot be broken. Amen. Can we stand together? If you're watching online, listening to this in the archive, or sitting or standing here in this building tonight, I want to say to you, get right with God and stay right with God because He is the Word of God. And just as He came once to deal with sin, He is coming once more to bring salvation to those who eagerly await His return. I can't answer for you, but I can tell you what I'm going to do. Besides making sure my calling and election is all good, I'm going to invite as many people as I can. I'm going to talk to as many people as I can. I'm going to share my testimony in the gospel of Jesus Christ with as many people as I can because I want as many people as can to be ready to go when Jesus comes. I've missed a few appointments in my life. Contrary to what my family might think, I'm not perfect. I'm saying that because none of them are in here tonight. <laughs> if they were in here, they'd be going, oh yeah, sure, you know. I don't remember when it happened, but there was a day when Brooklyn used to think I could do anything, and then that day came and went, and it was now, oh, dad. You know, I was like, huh, not daddy anymore. It's like, yay. But God is perfect. And that's one appointment I never want to miss. Hallelujah. If I die before the Lord comes back, I don't know what will be the last sound I hear. I don't know if it will be in a hospital bed. I don't know if it will be you know, somebody praying for me. I don't know what it will be. But I know this. If I die before he comes back, the next sound I'm going to hear is the trumpet. And so I'm kind of tuning my ear. To the eastern sky every once in a while going is it today are you coming yet I'm praying like John even so come quickly Lord Jesus and I want to take as many people with me scripture cannot be broken father in Jesus name I thank you for the word tonight I thank you that you are the word and that every line, every precept, every jot, every tittle is fulfilled in you and by you and through you. And I thank you tonight, oh God, that you came once to deal with sins, not just to roll them ahead, but remove them entirely. And you're coming once more to bring salvation. And I pray all of us would be ready on that day to meet you and to hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name we pray. God bless you. I look forward to seeing you Friday night and this weekend. Have a blessed evening.